Good morning, everybody. Um, today, uh, you can follow along in one of two ways. Either you can use the Bibles that are there provided for you at each seat. Um, we'll be in Luke chapter 20, or all of the verses will be up on the screen today, okay? So you can follow along either way. We are in a section where people are asking Jesus questions, and Jesus is at different points asking questions in return. Now, I, I wanted us to think about asking questions because, you know, a question's not always just a question. And, and here's what I mean by that. If, if I come to you and you are a student, I used to be a teacher, and I say, on how many assignments did you cheat this semester? I mean, I, I'm asking them a question to get an answer, but I have just accused them of what? Cheating. Like, the way I phrased the question was really not looking for an answer. It was, it, was, it was making an accusation instead. I can remember one time as a teacher, and if, if I had done this intentionally, oh, man, this would have been the greatest teaching technique ever. Uh, we had a, a student that we thought had done something, and so a couple of the teachers, we brought him into the room, and we said, we said to the young man, I, I won't give his name, but why do you think we brought you in here? And for the next 10 minutes, he told us a whole list of things that we didn't know he'd done. I mean, he just started telling us one thing after the other, and we were trying not to laugh. We never even punished him because we thought, it, I mean, it was just so funny. Like, but if I had done that on, pers uh, on purpose, I wouldn't have really been asking a question uh, sincerely. I would have been asking a question to get at something else. Or, you know, you could say to somebody, why did you do that? Or, same question, why did you do that, right? It's the same words, it's just the, the way that we say it is because we have different intentions. Or, you know, if after the Browns playoff loss, one of the reporters came up to the Browns coach and said, coach, are you satisfied with how well you prepared the team for the playoff game? Is that a sincere question or is it an accusation, right? And so, questions, Though they might have a question mark at the end of the sentence, they, they might be questions if you just look at the words, can have a couple of different purposes. Now, Jesse read for us part of Romans 1 this morning, and it talks about all human beings, and it says, until we, until we come to Christ, until the Holy Spirit works in our heart, we have unrighteousness, and we, by our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth which means there's part of us that really, really knows that God exists. There's part of us that knows that the Bible is true, but because we don't want to live in line with us until we come to Christ, there's part of us that ask questions at times, um, not because we're sincerely, we might think we are, but because we're trying to duck the truth instead of getting at the truth. Now, today, um, what we're going to find, and go ahead to the first slide here. There are questions that suppress or deflect the truth. The questions in this passage actually seek to trap Jesus. That's what the ones who are asking the questions are doing. They've come up with questions that no matter how he answers, it could get him into trouble. And then what Jesus does, he is going to ask some questions in return. But here's the problem when Jesus asks us questions. He can see right into our hearts he knows what we're doing and what our intentions are. And what, what he does in this passage is 
uh, he bears their souls. He shows what's really going on in their hearts. So follow along with me as we look at Luke 20, starting with verse 20. It says, they watched closely and sent spies who, what's the next word? Pretended, pretended to be righteous. So they're coming to Jesus, but they already do not have the right motives so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, as you go back to verse 20, <clears throat> we're jumping right into the middle of a chapter. It says they, if you were here with us, excuse me, last week when Pastor Caleb preached, you would know that the they is made up of some of the religious leaders, okay? We had some priests coming to Jesus. We had some scholars coming to Jesus. We had some elders of the Jewish people coming to Jesus. Because of their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, they should have been fully and completely prepared to recognize him as the Messiah, to recognize him as the Savior. But yet, the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus said were a threat to their power, were a threat to their way of doing things. And so now they come, and they're, they're putting on a face, they're pretending, but they really want to trip Jesus up and get him in trouble with either the religious leaders or the governor. And so notice they, they take out this coin or they're talking about a coin. They, they refer to him as teacher, probably in very honey-sweet words, a very honey-sweet way of saying things as if they're sincere and as if they're flattering him. Uh, but then they ask him, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, you might remember there was a group of people within the society of that day that the Jews especially did not like. And that group was and included the tax what? Yeah, the tax collectors. Remember how it worked back in Rome. Uh, the Roman government would assign or give the tax collectors the power to collect the taxes. And they had to turn a certain amount over to Rome. But they would usually add to what they were charging. And then the rest would go into their pockets. Um, now this, this tax was a, a particularly hateful one to the Jews because the entire tax went straight to the Roman government and what had the Roman government done to the Jewish people? Oppressed them, conquered them, okay? And so they come to Jesus and so if, if Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher, if he says straight up, oh, don't pay the taxes, Okay, that would maybe make some of the religious leaders happy, but what might happen to him because of the Roman government? Yeah, they might arrest him on the spot. They might execute him. Um, if he says, hey, the Romans are great, pay your taxes to the Romans, he's going to anger the Jewish people who are waiting for their deliverer, are waiting for their Messiah. And so Jesus, as he, he so often does, um, Jesus gives an answer. Now, their question was not a sincere question. They weren't coming to, to Jesus like some of you might do during the week. You might, you might be thinking about something. You might be reading about something, and you really want to know. And so you're like, Lord, help me to understand this issue. 
Or maybe you come in on a Sunday morning and you heard something in a Bible study or you heard something on the radio or you're thinking about something that was preached in the sermon last week and, and you might come with a genuine question where you just want to know what the right way to, to think is or the right way to do something. But we know from the passage, from everything that is set up, that that was not what they were trying to do. They had the wrong heart, the wrong attitude. They came with this question. And, and, and why this is so dangerous is this is something that Jesus points out throughout the New Testament is a danger. You might remember one time he told the parable of a sower. And he said the sower went out and sowed some seed. And there was a group that it says they, the seed was sown and the plants sprung up right away. But very shortly after they withered. And he was comparing that to some people who seem to respond to the teaching of Jesus very enthusiastically, but it doesn't last very long. Sometimes people say what they don't mean. They say one thing, but the heart reveals something else. And let's be honest, sometimes we say one thing, and yet our hearts are not in the right place either. And so that's what is going on here. Um, Jesus knows what their intention is. And so in verse 23, the Bible tells us after this question has been asked, but detecting their craftiness, that's a good thing about Jesus. He knows. Sometimes when people ask us questions or come to you and to me, we don't know. I mean, we're just guessing. We don't want to be the, the accuser. Why are you asking that and getting mad at everybody because we're not Jesus, but yet we need to be praying to Jesus and praying to the spirit that the truth is revealed over time so that we can see what's really going on. Jesus detected their craftiness and he said to them, show me a denarius, which was the name for the coin, whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well, then he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Did Jesus say to them, oh, those rotten Romans, don't give them any taxes, rebel? No. Did Jesus say to them, oh, everything that the Romans do is fine and perfect. Why don't you follow the Romans? No. He gave a perfect answer knowing what they were trying to do. Now, we can learn a couple things from his answer. We, uh, when it says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, this is a general principle throughout the New Testament that when a government that is in charge of us tells us something to do or tells us something not to do, we should, for the most part, obey unless what we're being commanded to do or not do goes against what God has commanded us to do or not do, right? In general, we're supposed to be good citizens. But I, I think Jesus has more in mind here because he also knows that many of these religious leaders were very interested in setting up a religious system that allowed them to become wealthy, that allowed them to become powerful. In fact, they had an idea that the more wealth you acquired and the more power you acquired, the better favor you had with God. God was pleased with you, and that's why you got what you got. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's showing them that sometimes the stuff that is valued here on earth, Caesar's stuff, is not the same thing that 
God values. As religious leaders who knew the Old Testament inside and out, what they should have been valuing is they should have been valuing everything that the prophets taught about the one who was to come. And when that one came, if their hearts were right as they searched the scripture, they would have accepted him and responded to him as the Messiah and as the Savior. But instead, they will be the very ones who reject him and send him to the what? To the grave, to the cross. And so Jesus knows that this is going on, and he is, he's giving them more than just a warning about money. He's giving them a warning about where their thoughts and their focus and their heart should really be focused on the things that are God's and not the things that are just involved with money and earthly possessions. So he has avoided the first trap, but it's not done. Verse 27, now another group comes to him, another group of religious leaders. Some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her in the same way. All seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. In the Old Testament, there, there was a system set up so that if a woman was widowed, she would still have the opportunity for marriage, children, land, possessions, and protection. And what, the, what these Sadducees are doing is they're trying to come up with a ridiculous scenario again to trip Jesus up, to trap him. Uh, the Sadducees were kind of an interesting group. They accepted the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that's what we usually think of as the place where God presented the Old Testament law. He told the Hebrew people how to live. And so they believed that really what you ought to do is you ought to live according to God's law. But it tells us in verse 27, they did not believe that there was a what? A resurrection. And so they believed that this life was all you get. And if you'll just follow God's law, you'll at least have some blessing here in this life. If you don't follow God's law, you're in trouble. And they did not believe in the resurrection. And so they're trying to create this scenario, which is rather a ridiculous one, to show how ridiculous the resurrection is. Now, part of their motive is they were very aligned with the Roman government. It, they, they did not criticize the Romans. They uh, actually supported a lot of the things that the Romans did. And what that gave them is it gave them power and wealth. And if this life is all that you get, many people would say get as much power and as much wealth as you can if that's all you get. So that is their belief system. They have laid out for Jesus this ridiculous scenario. Now, just so you know, there were other Jews, other religious teachers, who went to other parts of the Old Testament and taught the resurrection. I'll just read you a couple of Old Testament verses that maybe you've never seen. In the book of Daniel, it says, But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, and then you will rise 
to receive your inheritance at the end of the days. Okay, Daniel has a, a verse that many Old Testament teachers believed was teaching resurrection. In the book of Job, Job said, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. Again, a verse that many Old Testament teachers believed was teaching the resurrection. And we could, we could go on to several others. And in Psalm 169, it says, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my body rests securely. Okay, the idea that we can rest secure even as we face death if we know that the one who has promised resurrection is going to bring it to pass. But again, they don't believe in the resurrection. They've set up this story to try to mess with Jesus. There's no real good answer to give, except what Jesus does is, once again, he gives the perfect answer. In verse 34, Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. What is Jesus talking about when he says that age, uh, to take part in another age? What, do you, what, what would we call that? Some of us refer to that as if I die, I want to go to what? Okay, now the scriptures actually teach that if you are a believer who has connected yourself to faith through Jesus Christ, if you die, the Bible says you will be absent from your body, yet the invisible part of you will be present with, with the Lord. But that's not the end. The, the New Testament also teaches that there will be a day of resurrection where every believer will receive a new body that can no longer die. Okay, It can no longer experience sickness. It can no longer be broken. I might even get some hair back. I don't know. All right, I, I, that, that's one of the mysteries. Will I be able to jump? Because I've never been able to jump very high, and will I get some hair? But those things aren't really important. But we know from the New Testament that there is a resurrection day, and then heaven comes down to meet earth. The eternal kingdom is actually set up on a restored earth, and Jesus Christ rules and reigns as king over it forevermore. And so as Jesus is talking about that permanent eternal state that will one day exist where we will still have human relationships with other believers there will be many of us here on this earth together worshiping the Lord um, from every tribe every tongue every nation all kinds of languages together worshiping and yet we will be able to rub shoulders with the king of the universe because he will be here ruling that's the age that Jesus is referring to. And he, he says, those who are counted worthy, which means is everybody going to be part of that kingdom? Everybody going to be part of that age? No, he's giving a warning again to these leaders who are trying to trip him up. They don't believe in the resurrection. And he's saying, not only is there a resurrection, but you're in trouble, okay, for your belief system, for your practice, for the way that you are living. But yet, that age will be different. Not only can we no longer sin, not only can we no longer die, not only, and the list goes on and on, one of the things that Jesus reveals to us here is that that will be an age where there is no longer marriage, okay? No longer childbearing, those kinds of things. He is saying, in verse 36, they can no longer die, 
in this sense because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. Now, Jesus did something else here that you probably wouldn't notice unless you've studied the Sadducees. There's another thing that the Sadducees did not believe in. They did not believe in angels. And so as Jesus answers them, he, uh, he answers them and basically says, your, your story doesn't matter. The story that you're using to trip me up doesn't matter because you don't understand what that new age is going to be like. And furthermore, I'm going to use angels in my illustration because you're wrong about them too. All right, he can see and knows exactly what's going on. But then he takes it even further. I want, want you to look with me at verse 37. We said that the part of the Bible they accepted was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The, the, the great primary figure that is credited with writing a lot of that down is a guy who led them out of slavery from Egypt named who? Moses. All right. So they say that the books that they accept are the books that Moses wrote. And so Jesus now turns as he finishes his argument with them. And he turns right to those books. And here's what he says. Verse 37, Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Jesus is referring back to that Old Testament section of Exodus where Moses is being called into ministry he's being called to work for the Lord he sees this bush that is burning and yet not consumed and the words that are shared with him are the God of Abraham the God of Isaac the God of Jacob and here's what Jesus says he's not the God of the dead but of the living because all are living to him so what he is saying is the very Moses that you say you respect. The very Moses that you say you honor, the very fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that you say we should look to as an example, but yet they are dead and cannot raise, Jesus is saying they're already alive, absent from the body, present with the Lord, because God is the God of the living. And the tense that he uses there is the tense of not the past, but of the present, that Abraham is alive, Isaac is alive, Jacob is alive, Moses is alive, and the good news of the gospel is all who die in Christ Jesus are alive right now in his presence awaiting that resurrection. Some of the scribes answered in verse 39, teacher, you have spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. So the, the first question was, was kind of about practical life. Here, we've got these, these coins. Um, it's a practical life. It's, it's just regular, everyday stuff like paying taxes. The second question got to a theological truth about the resurrection, and Jesus clearly taught that resurrection exists and that all who are resurrected are alive now. And all of us who are not yet gone from this earth, can look forward to with faith in the resurrection because of what Jesus is teaching. But now Jesus asks them a question that connects all of this together, that connects how we live on a day-to-day -day basis, that connects how we are able to enter into the kingdom. 
He says in verse 41, Then he said to them, How can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Jesus knew that the Jews were looking to the promised Messiah as a descendant of Abraham who would come and would be the Messiah. He would be the chosen one, the anointed one, the appointed one. And what they expected him to do was to ride in with the cavalry, to ride in with the soldiers and overthrow whom? Who was in charge? Caesar. Overthrow the Romans. Set up the kingdom now. Put the Jews in charge. Now, they had a, a misunderstanding of how this was all going to come together because we know from what we've learned that Jesus came the first time as the lamb to be slain. He will come again as the lion to rule. Okay. But they're asking this question, and they are focusing upon the fact that the Messiah is to be a descendant of, a, uh, of David, which is true. It's promised in Psalm 110, which is quoted here. It's promised in many other places. But Jesus wants to point out to them a part of Psalm 110 that they have ignored, where there seems to be a conversation going on within the Trinity. Now, we believe that there is one God fully existed in three persons from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Good, good. And so here you have the Lord, and if you could look at the Hebrew words, if we put this all up on the screen and you knew a little bit about Hebrew, you would find some, some subtle word differences here that help us to understand it. But basically you've got God referring to somebody else's Lord. You have the Father talking to the Son, talking to the Messiah. And David, as he wrote this psalm, is referring to his descendant as the Lord. Now, why is that? Because we know that Jesus is a descendant of David in his human flesh, but he is also the Son of God who has existed forever and ever and ever from all eternity. The Bible teaches God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God in three persons having a relationship forever and ever throughout time, but at a given moment in time because you and I messed things up and became enemies of God, God the Son took on a body. And so we worship the one who is the one and only God-man. He is unique, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's showing them that not only is he a man descended from Adam, but he's also the Lord. And if you call somebody Lord, you had better do what? Better listen, okay? Um, one of my favorite preachers has often used an illustration. He says, we act sometimes like... We want Jesus, but we don't want Jesus Christ, okay? We want Jesus, but we don't want Jesus Lord. We want salvation, and we want forgiveness. But see, when he enters into our life, he enters into our life as who he is. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is God, and he is man. He is who he is, and that is 
what he is revealing to these religious leaders on this spot, that they need to understand that he is more than just a human. He is more than just a man. He is the one and only that God sent who will live the life that they should have lived. He will obey God perfectly, and they're sinning right as they talk to him. He has obeyed in every area that you and I have disobeyed. The Bible says he was tempted in all things, yet he was without what? He was without sin. If the wages of sin is death, you and I deserve to what? Die because we have sinned. And yet Jesus, the Bible tells us, did not sin, did not deserve death. And so when he will die at the hands of the religious leaders, at the hands of the Romans, at the hands of of those who cried out, crucify him, he died not because he deserved it, but he died because we deserved it. And so what Jesus is doing is he is answering their questions by directing their attention to the only thing that can give them hope, the only thing that can make them part of the kingdom, the only thing that can help them to live on a day-to-day basis is if they come to him as he is and accept him as he is. Well, let's finish this out. Um, I didn't want to stick the next pastor next week with just a few verses at the end of the chapter so it says while all the people were listening he said to his disciples beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets they devour widows houses and say long prayers just for show they will receive harsher judgment he's just spent the whole chapter arguing with religious leaders arguing with people who on the outside talked a good game and looked very good, but he could see into their hearts and understood exactly where they were at. So what does this all mean for us this morning? Well, uh, our response in a couple of areas, our response to Jesus is going to help us live practically, okay? Giving to Caesar what is Caesar, giving to God what is God. It's going to allow us a hope in the resurrection, but it does those things as we come to Jesus as Lord and as Savior of our lives. And so the the question that we're left with this morning was the same question that faced the religious leaders, and yet what most of them did is they walked away not knowing what to say. He had shut them up temporarily, but for most of them it did not result in a lifelong heart change. And see, we can do the same thing this morning. We can be faced with Jesus as the one and only God-man, as the pathway to resurrection, as the Lord of our lives, and we can walk the other way, or we can accept him as who he claims to be, receiving his salvation, receiving the hope of the resurrection, and receiving a practical way to live in obedience to him in the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, help us not to walk away from you foolishly, sticking to our own way of doing things. But, oh, Lord, may we see you as you are, as as the God-man, as the pathway to resurrection, as the Lord of our lives, as our only hope. Thank you for your sacrifice for us. In your name we pray. Amen.